0: This is Carpe Consensus. Join hosts Ben Schiller, Danny Nelson, and Cam Thompson as they seize the world of crypto.
1: Welcome to Carpe Consensus. Copy Consensus is a new podcast from the Coindesk Podcast Network, and it's where we get into the big themes of crypto, including decentralization, the future of finance, the future of the internet. And we'll be doing that by interviewing some major speakers from the upcoming show in Texas next April, and looking at some of the news that just happened, and there's no shortage of that recently. My name is Ben Schiller. I am the features editor here at Coindesk, and we'll be introducing the co host here, Danny Nelson. Are you okay today? How are you? I am. All right. Good, good, good. And we also have Cameron Thompson, who is a Web3 reporter here at Coinesk. Good morning, Cameron.
2: Good
3: morning, Ben. How's it going?
1: It's going very well. Never a dull moment in the crypto universe, so we're going to get right to it. We're going to do a crypto catch up. Uh, Then we're going to talk to a influencer known as DeFi Dad, who is a speaker at next year's Consensus Festival in April. Then we're going to talk about a package that we're putting out this week called Crypto 2023, which is a series of review pieces and opinion prediction pieces looking ahead. And then Cameron's going to come back with what we're calling Cam's Corner, which is a lighthearted look at the world of crypto. So we have a bumper show for you this week and let's get to it. Danny, what's been happening recently?
2: Yeah, so in recent weeks, a story that's very close to my heart, my investigative heart, came to fruition. Madison Cawthorn, a soon-to-be former representative in the United States House of Representatives, and also noted altcoin trader, was proven to have traded his cryptocurrencies in an unethical manner by a House Investigations Committee which found that he had bought $150,000 of the Let's Go Brandon cryptocurrency, Let's Go Brandon being a joke about Joe Biden on the right, and had bought this currency, pumped it up, and then sold it. And he did this without disclosing his ownership to the public. Now, this is an issue because if you're an elected official in the United States, you have certain ethics responsibilities. You can't be buying investments, pumping them up, and then dumping them on the public. And that is what he was doing. Now, for me, I really like this story because I actually, months ago, had found his wallet and figured out that he had been making these trades and the amount that he had been making. So I was really excited to see the House Investigations Committee, which
1: cited my, my report, I must say, come to the same conclusion that I did. Congratulations, Danny. It's always good to see uh, impact from your work. So just uh, fill people in on how you came about the story in the beginning.
2: Yeah, so it wasn't a complete secret that Cawthorne had purchased this cryptocurrency. He had been promoting it online, and he had said publicly that he had bought it. He hadn't said how much. I ended up calling a person that I thought might be close to the situation. He just told me everything on the phone. And then I looked back at the on-chain transactions, figuring there, was only, there couldn't be that many transfers of this low-volume cryptocurrency on a specific date.
1: And I picked a wallet that I thought looked like it might be his, and I was right. Amazing. So uh, we, we never like to see uh, people lose their jobs, but this seems like a pretty fitting end to this guy's career because he uh, showed himself to be deeply unethical. What do you think, Cam?
3: This token, Let's Go Brandon. I'm just curious, out of, out of all assets to be in a scheme like this, why specifically this one? Danny, if you can just oh. explain it a little bit more.
2: I mean, it makes perfect sense. Madison Cawthorne is someone who associates very closely with the Trump wing of the Republican Party. The Trump wing has turned this phrase, let's go Brandon, into a meme that sideways meant F Joe Biden. So if you're a Trump supporter and you don't like Joe and there's a cryptocurrency where you could, that you could buy to say, I don't like Joe Biden... That makes perfect sense in my mind as a meme coin. So that was the impetus for purchasing this cryptocurrency. There's a whole backstory with NASCAR and this and that that we don't need to get into. But he basically invested in an alt-right
1: meme. An alt-coin for an alt-right. Thank you, Danny. So uh, you mentioned unethical behavior and failing to disclose one's assets. And that's a theme in the next story we're going to look at, which is a competitive publication to Coindesk called The Block was found. Last week, to have had secret funding from no less a figure than SBF at Sam Bankman Fried. Particularly, the CEO of the block, or the ex CEO of the block, Mike McCaffrey, was found to have taken three different loans, two of which went into the company during a buyout, and one went personally to McCaffrey to buy a condo in the Bahamas next to or somewhere near SBF's uh, compound there all of which as i said was was not disclosed to the public or to the journalists and other good people at the block so this is a clear case of uh, unethical behavior and you know it's a shame it's a deep deep shame that the block is now underwater with this but it is uh, a deeply troubling event danny what's your take on this
2: Yeah, I mean, we have to say here at Coindesk, we have our own daddy, if you will. We have Barry Silverton and DCG, and they are our owners. So I guess we can't exactly fault the block for having a corporate owner, but the issue really is one of disclosure. We talk very publicly about the fact that DCG owns us. Whenever we write about DCG, we make a note in our story. We all know it. Everyone knows it. It is what it is. The block did not make this known. Mike McCaffrey specifically did not and he did not do so because he thought that it would cloud the objectivity of the block if people knew this, which just to me shows how little he understood about running a media corporation ethically. Cameron.
3: I agree. I'm on the same page. I think that it's very hard to believe that none of the journalists knew. At least we're under the impression, or we've been told that no one was aware until Friday afternoon. However, given this information, you know. As we make it very clear when we write at Coindesk that DCG owns us and any subsidiary companies, we also make that very clear. You do have to call into question the ethics and whether or not there were people that did know and didn't say anything.
2: If I might for a second, let me defend the reporters of the block. I don't think that they knew about this loan. I think that the only reason why this has come to light was probably because Mike McCaffrey was under pressure from Alameda to pay back the loan. And so he came, this is my theory, and so he came clean to other people at the block, the high up, and that very quickly turned into a situation where he had to go. Now, I should say, though, I agree with you, Cam, I don't think that this question of influence is over. You don't need to know that you're bought off to be influenced by the party that has bought you off. So I think it's very fair to think critically
1: about this situation and make sure that we understand the full scope of it. I don't know. I mean, uh, if if the CEO suddenly came up with, I think, up to $30 million to buy out half the company, presumably somebody might have thought that was suspicious because he didn't come from uh, noticeably independent means, Mr. McCaffrey. So how was it that he came by $30 million to to buy that big stake? Uh, That seems pretty uh, red flaggy to me. But, you know, I'm prepared to believe that the journalists who are doing good work over there didn't know. But uh, maybe they should have known.
2: Yeah. And maybe we should have thought more critically too. The rumor that we had was that his parents had funded it. We never really dug into that. We just, or at least I sort of just accepted that at face value. And that's a failing on my part not to have thought more deeply about this question of where's the money from? I didn't know it's $30 million, but it's obvious that this guy came out of nowhere to buy a company. How'd he get the money? That's a very important question.
3: Well, that's the thing. They never disclosed it. And had that been disclosed at least somewhere in any of their articles, any time they reported on SPF, if there was some line that said that the block has received funding from Sam Bankman-Fried, that could have provided some more clarity. Granted, they didn't do that. And this comes back to this whole question about, you know, journalistic integrity in this case.
1: Yep. And I think the question going forward, just to round out this segment, is, you know. Should organizations, including the bloc and a number of other media organizations, a number of politicians, lots of other companies, should they be required or, you know, ethically or morally uh, required to to pay back the money in some form or at least make some gesture towards that? Because um, I I don't know how on the one hand you can poo-poo someone like SPF and then take his money. because. At this point, you know, SBF, like it or not, does effectively own half the block. I mean, if uh, if he paid the loan to McCaffrey and that loan is unpaid, then uh, presumably he's in ownership effectively of, of half that company. And that would be deeply unsettling to me as, as a journalist working there. And uh, we're going to have to see if they make any gesture to pay that money back. Anyway, let's move on uh, from that rather unsavory segment and get to the next item on our list.
0: Join Coindesk's Consensus 2023, where Web3 meets IRL, happening April 26th through 28th in Austin, Texas. Consensus is the industry's only event bringing together all sides of crypto, Web3, and the metaverse. Immerse yourself in all that blockchain technology has to offer marketers, advertisers, brand leaders, creators, builders, founders, entrepreneurs, and more. Visit coindesk.com consensus.
2: This week on the show, we've got DeFi Dad. Uh, he's one of our consensus speakers for the upcoming festival in April in Austin, Texas. DeFi Dad is one of the top advocates for education in the crypto space, and he's here to talk to us about you know, all aspects of bringing DeFi understanding to the wider masses. DeFi Dad, welcome to the show.
4: Yeah. Hi, Dan. Hey, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here.
2: Yeah. So I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on looking back on this extended bear market that we're seeing. Everything seems to be blowing up. Centralized exchanges are imploding through fraud or other means. DeFi protocols are getting hacked. But you're certainly an advocate for DeFi in the crypto space. How do you understand the the path forward for DeFi right now?
4: Yeah, it's been a very frustrating year uh, in crypto. I, I think... Lately, it's been very reaffirming to go back to the basics of what you learn when you first enter the crypto space. One of those is not your keys, not your Bitcoin, or not your keys, not your crypto. So self custody has clearly been demonstrated to be important. And so that's actually a positive, I think, long term for the space. There's a lot of newcomers in the space who never quite understood the importance of that. You know, lots of folks trust their assets on centralized exchanges. And while they're important partners to the growth of crypto, it's very important that you know how to self-custody your crypto. I've always thought of if you put your crypto onto an exchange, it's kind of like owning a really fast car that you drive really slowly. So that's, that's been one of them. Another basic, though, is just going back to not trusting anyone and relying on trustless software. So
2: that's been very, I think, reaffirming for, for DeFi. But with trustless software, I mean, the software was still written by someone. And even if we don't need to trust the someone who is no longer in charge of it, we have to trust that the software will do what we think it will do and won't succumb to anything else. So that is still a matter of trust. And it's not one that DeFi's been immune from failing on that front. So, like, you know, how does crypto get around that fact when things still blow up, even when? they carry the banner of being trustless.
4: Yeah, so, so that's, that's another lesson then lately is understanding the nuance of what is more decentralized, what's less decentralized, what is like truly censorship resistant. So my guess is that what's coming in, in the next year and in, and in the coming years is there's going to have to be just that much more information and that much more tooling to basically Keep us informed.
1: So just give us a sense of the kind of fallout from FTX in particular. Uh, I mean, a lot of people have been saying in the wake of FTX that we uh, should go back to the kind of ethos of crypto, i.e. not trusting the middleman. And SPF kind of showed us that there was too much kind of hero worship and too much trust in this single individual who turned out to be highly fallible. How has that kind of played out in DeFi? I mean, are we seeing a rush to trustless systems as opposed to SPF type systems?
4: I think Dan actually just, you know, touched on that. You know, you're right to frame up that DeFi hasn't been immune from all of this. Terra was in some sense DeFi, but there was at some point, you know, there, there were certain applications there that were really living up to that ethos of, you know, trying to build the most censorship resistant, permissionless application. But at the end of the day, it was settled on a network that ended up having more and more centralized controls and so i think <laughs> i think lately with what's happened with FTX and and SBF it has given me more pause than to try to like i think offer the i told you so insight there's a lot of that going on in crypto right now almost to a disgusting degree i think a lot of you know, people sort of you know beating their chest and saying, "See, you know, I was right about this, or you were wrong about this." What What's happened with FTX is, aside from it sort of reaffirming the need to build like what is truly trustless, what's truly censorship resistant. I think I think it's just a reminder that the space is made up of lots of really flawed humans. We attract, for for better or worse, we we attract folks who you know, see opportunity in the space. And sometimes those people seize on that opportunity to build something of value for, for all of us. And some of them look to exploit others. So it's, it's, been, it's been really
2: uncomfortable to watch, but um, I'm hoping we can get past it. But the, the question that I have is like, you know, sure, these systems will work if we have the right mixture of trustless and, and good actors. But it's been a really, really, really tough time for a lot of people who put a lot of trust, whether they should have or not, into crypto, into DeFi, into any of this stuff. And they got burned in a big way. What's your stance on the value proposition of any of this stuff going forward? Like, why should there be DeFi? Yeah, that's okay. That, that's a tough one. But it's the most important one, right? Like, without yeah. that, what's the point of any of this? Yeah,
4: I mean, I definitely want to reframe like what we have seen as of late is definitely a failing of centralized finance. It uses crypto assets, but you know, when you talk about FTX, when you talk about what happened with Three Arrows Capital and Celsius and so on, I definitely don't associate that with DeFi. What's unfortunate is that a lot of centralized finance was able to, and this is referring strictly to crypto they were able to play off of the excitement and the interest in DeFi. And so I remember uh, Celsius specifically used the term DeFi and they would have spaces and Alex Mashinsky would go on and on about like, what's DeFi, you know, what you define it as, I, I wouldn't actually define it as, as something that excludes something like Celsius. And I thought there was a lot of misleading that went on. and And to be clear, I tried to sound the horn, uh, you know, many times around the the risks. If you look at any tutorial I I ever write, I try to call out as many of the risks as I can think of um, related to just DeFi. But then when it comes to the centralized finance, I would try to explicitly call out like you are trusting, of course, your crypto with, with someone else. But at the end of the day, when you're in a bull market, the difference between then and where we are now in a bear market is. In a bull market, everyone believes that everything will work. And in a bear market, we're back to nothing will work. And the issue is when you're in that bull run, you have so many newcomers who, who just have not lived through these ups and downs, and they don't value the decentralization and the self-custody and, and so on. That said, I think where we are today is DeFi specifically is, is ready to go mainstream. So there's been missing pieces along the way. And it's been frustrating to tell people, you just got to wait longer. You got to be patient. Oh, it's coming. Oh, it's has you know, that, that is very frustrating for people to hear. Anyways, that, that's the silver lining going into 2023 L2s and scalability is finally here.
3: Totally. So there's one thing I wanted to ask you just kind of ripping off of what you just said. So you talked about DeFi going mainstream. You know, in the crypto space right now, there are a lot of different technologies, Web3 specifically. You know, we throw that term around a lot as this new Internet and these technologies that will get adopted. But I'm wondering, you know, with DeFi being this sort of, you know, starting as a subset of the crypto space and, you know, growing a lot more, you know, post DeFi summer. Technologies like NFT NFTFI being able to put up an NFT as collateral and other use cases, you know, kind of speaking to these broader themes. I'm just curious, you know, where you see DeFi going outside of just finance.
4: Yeah. Um, one thing we haven't really touched on yet is the importance of the last few years. There was this major sort of interest in crypto because of NFTs. And again, it left somewhat of a bad taste in my mouth. 2021 for me was the most uncomfortable year. I'm not deep into the NFT space in terms of collecting. I've just been more of, I've been more interested in, aside from a few projects, mainly just thinking like, okay, how can you use an NFT to like improve the usability of different protocols? How can you sort of merge the benefits of DeFi and NFTs? And I think that despite all of the frothiness, you know, all of the, you know, ridiculous sorts of TikTok videos we all saw about people claiming that you can get rich, buy these NFTs, and quickly flip them, those that have stayed the long-term holders, and I'm not just thinking of those holding like hundred thousand dollar NFTs, you know, I'm thinking of people that are gonna use NFTs for for real use cases. If you have something and you plan to hold it and it has any sort of value to it. The fact that you can borrow against it with something like niftyfi.com or, you know, arcade.xyz, those are great examples of protocols that are really going to allow you to, you know, be able to borrow against something that you see as a store of value.
1: I just wanted to return to the question of uh, where DeFi goes from here in the wake of FTX and the other scandals. I mean, some people say that this is, you know, an argument, as you if you said, to go the permissionless route and to have DeFi protocols, which, are, you know, not dependent on these middlemen who can turn out to be fallible. But surely regulators are going to come in in the next year and say, you know, we need systems that are more like banks, where someone is responsible in the middle of the transaction. And if something goes wrong in that transaction, then we can kind of make that person in the middle liable for what went wrong. I mean, isn't, the trend now towards more centralization rather than less centralization, not because of users, but because of regulators and lawmakers. I definitely am less optimistic than I was like 12 months ago on
4: this, but I do continue to believe that if we empower regulators with information and the time to be able to think that they will likely come to conclusions that are, I think could be favorable to the growth of of DeFi and crypto. The problem is that they just haven't had time to do, you know, hearings and roundtables and to like really meet with as many industry experts. This is part of the reason the blockchain association and Coin Center and the DeFi fund are so important. I also think, like, not to like toot your guys' horn while I'm here, but it's very important for the adoption of DeFi, NFTs, crypto, it's very important that like we have journalists who are actually, you know, pressing for these like harder questions that we're talking about here. So, you know, whether it's you guys, the defiant, and so on. Anyways, that's my take on regulation. Also not a regulation expert, but obviously I have to be on top of these things as an investor.
2: With the DeFi fund and the Blockchain Association, and even the media, everyone in this space is owned by the corporate interests. The block, the most notably and most recently, (laughs) you know, it's a matter of trust. And why should DeFi place its trust in these entities, DeFi as an amalgamous blob, place its trust in these entities that are aligned with corporate interests or that are owned by corporate interests? because the corporate interests yeah. have a different perspective on these matters. Yeah, th- this kind of goes back to the
4: don't trust verify principle that it's thrust upon you in lots of intro, you know, videos and articles when you first get into crypto. It's still more important than ever. I think though that what what allows the crypto space to just keep moving past these like really tumultuous bear cycles is that there is like a deep-seated belief in building something of greater value for as many people as possible oddly enough even though there's really dramatic arguments between lots of different personalities in the crypto space when you drill down like i bet if we went around this call you tend to find when you dig deeper that we all are very deeply aligned on a lot more than what divides us but that small difference of course is what gets debated and i think that is what pushes the space forward you know when we have the bull cycle, it's all the bandwagoners join. But amongst those bandwagoners is the next generation of great builders, great investors, great users, and, and so on. So yeah, that's, that's what I'm still optimistic after. I, I think I'm going into like my sixth year in the space, still feeling like a newcomer myself. I think that's what's going to continue to propel us forward. There's deep-seated values that I think cannot be expunged from the space, even though again, we, we have our low points where we idolize, you know, bad actors and and grifters and, and we make that mistake and we tell ourselves we won't fall victim to it. But then there's a new class of of folks who come into the space and there's that group I think that takes over.
2: We've we've seen the block as obviously our competitor. I also see it as the publication that the crypto native crypto Twitter crowd flocks to the hardest, the fastest, the most. They're also the same crowd that's gotten burned the most by these blowups and most specifically FTX. Is that going to, in your opinion, have an impact on their willingness to engage with the block and to trust it as a publication?
4: So when I first saw that news, my immediate reaction was, oh, okay, that's obviously not good news. And that is clearly an indictment of the character of the CEO who's now resigned. But then, again, because of, the, you know, if you really buy into the idea that you should not trust and you should, you know, look to verify um, before you make any sort of like assumption, yeah, you start to question like, I wonder what else could be compromised there. So they're, they're going to need time to, I think, rebuild that credibility. But to your point, I th- I think the the major takeaway is when you read something in The Block or CoinDesk or The Defiant or whatever Axios, you should know that again there's a you know there are still human beings that are putting these stories together that could be making mistakes. And so just, you know, be rational when you read something, don't just take it for what it's worth and assume that it that it must be true.
2: A quick question. The the block now has months of reporting that's been done on FTX and SBF. Should every single article that the block has put out have a disclaimer now ret- retroactively at the bottom that makes this clear? Going forward their articles appear to have it, but going back, should all of the articles about SBF in that time period have a disclaimer?
4: I think that's a very like rational request to make. Yeah. If if I were them, I, I would put it in there because someone obviously a year from now could be reading an old post and they might be totally new to the space. And if there were just like that disclaimer plus like maybe a link to like, here's all the background if you're new to this. Um, I think it speaks to like just really good intentions of being as as forthright and truthful as possible moving forward.
1: Yeah. Just to pick up on one of your points about, you know, don't trust to uh, verify. I mean, it's impossible to verify something when you don't know yeah. that it's happening, right? And in this case, there was no possibility to verify anything about the relationship between SBF and Mike McCaffrey, the CEO or the ex-CEO of, of the block, because he didn't disclose his investment. So that's why we disclose everything at Coindesk. You know, people can cast their own aspersions and have their own ideas about influence from Barry Silbert on what we do here. But at least they can do that. At least they can form an opinion, even if it's a conspiracy and completely wrong. <laughs>
4: Absolutely. Yeah, That's. I mean, I think that's part of the reason, too, that you guys have been around so long and continue to thrive. Uh, you've been through so many of these cycles. And I think also, too, the, the longevity of just being in the crypto space speaks volumes about those that that are in it, you know, you have to live through, again, these ups and downs and, and all these failings to, like, really understand the importance. I wasn't here during Mt. Gox, but I've, I've heard all the stories. I, I think I understood, like, just what a horrific event that was. But until I saw FTX collapse, I, I was like, wow, now I totally get it. And I'm someone fortunate enough, I, I truly don't use a centralized exchange beyond, like, just getting in, in and out of fiat. But I know a lot of really smart people who profess self-custody, who lost a lot of money you know, to that. And so I think it's, it's just another telltale sign of you should actually use the technology here that's being evangelized and, and built by the crypto space. Otherwise, when you go and use whatever centralized exchange, you've, what do I want to say, neutered
2: the uh, benefits of crypto. Well, thank you so much. Come see the new class of grifters, charlatans, and also CEOs at Consensus 2023. DeFi Dad, who is none of those things, hopefully, uh, will be there too. We're looking forward to it. Thank you for joining us today on the show.
4: No, thanks guys for having me. I appreciate all you do.
1: Okay, and so I just wanted to tell the listeners here that we have a nice new package coming out at Coindesk.com this week. It's called Crypto 2023. It's our look back at the year in crypto 2022. And I look forward to what we think might happen or could happen in the year ahead. And we have a good range of outside contributors uh, discussing all kinds of crypto related topics from stablecoins to Bitcoin, to Ethereum, to future of DeFi and everything else under the crypto umbrella universe. So check that out. It's going to be two weeks of content and roughly uh, 50 pieces. And starting very shortly, we have a special jumbo crossword. So guys, where do we go from here? Where do we go from here?
2: Where do we go from here?
1: I don't know. I kind of want to
2: try a new thing in 2023 where I become a maximalist for one thing. Like maybe I'll become a stablecoin maximalist just to see what like life is like. As a maximalist for tether, what would that be like? I want, I want to know. I want to feel what it's like.
3: I feel like stable coins. There's just they, there can't be as much passion around. A currency I don't know. That just stays at a peg.
1: I think I, mean, I can get a lot of there? energy into pegging. Um, you could be passionate about uh, attested reserves or audited reserves. Kim, if you had to become a maxi for one coin
2: this coming year, what would you choose?
3: If I had to be a maxi, yeah. that's a good question. You know, if there's one community that's absolutely crazy like might just go join the xrp army
2: oh no just for
3: fun just for she's fun she's gonna
2: get recruited you could be a petty officer it's
3: about the community you asked about being a maxi about a community so i would choose that one because it's the most ridiculous in so you're my gonna opinion fight
2: for, for general bread garlic bread i love it i love it ben what about exactly. you what would you if you had to be a maxi for one year what would you pick
1: well i have to say i have a soft spot for the cardano crowd and particularly uh, charles hudkinson so that would probably be my uh rabbit mob oh no cult following uh, we have Card- we have tether we have
2: cardano we have uh xrp we have a, a true axis of evil here folks um <laughs> oh my goodness
3: these are all the communities on crypto tech talk that you want to stay away from because they will flood your For You page.
2: This is
1: highly disturbing. I'm looking forward to the year ahead if we actually follow through with this. So please go and check out Crypto 2023. It's our best estimate as to what might happen in the year ahead and after the year that we've just had. Uh, It's anyone's guess really, but uh, we've got the wisest and smartest people around to give their take on it. So um, check it out.
3: All right. Ham's Corner. Let's get into it. So I'm excited because this week we're going to be talking about a major, major brand that's stepping into Web3. I mean, we've already seen it a little bit. You know, it's been teased before, but it's officially being beta tested. The Starbucks Odyssey program. This is where Starbucks customers are able to get loyalty points in the form of NFTs on Polygon. So some of these benefits that come from the NFTs include virtual espresso martini making classes, special events, trips to Starbucks, roasteries, and coffee farms. So it's called an odyssey because each of these different NFTs are called journey stamps. So then you go on this journey to make your Starbucks experience very Web3. Danny, what do you think about how this brand in particular is making use of NFTs as this loyalty program?
2: Forget about the brand. I'm now going to expense all my coffee every morning and say it's, you know, for the
1: NFTs and Kendall will have to deal with it. So I'm looking forward to that.
3: Ben, what about you?
1: Well, I mean, Starbucks does have one of the biggest loyalty programs in the world. So the fact that they're embracing Web3 is a pretty big deal. And actually we had the leader of this effort uh, in our recent most influential head of business development at uh, Polygon who was instrumental in putting it together. That's Ryan Wyatt, yeah, I think it's a big idea from the kind of mainstream adoption point of view. I, I don't quite understand exactly how Starbucks is planning to use this technology, but the fact that they are using it is uh, is, is a big deal. And I'm wondering if I can buy a NFT along with my uh, triple frappuccino with uh, oat milk next time I go into Starbucks. How many pumps of caramel do you take? Uh,
2: at least five. I, I love it. <laughs> yeah. What I want to know, though, is yeah. how much... Starbucks got for this deal. It seems to me that they didn't just willy-nilly waltz into the Polygon Biz Dev office. I'm sure that there was some sort of financial incentive to create this program. So one of my questions for Ryan would be, how much did you guys pay for this?
3: That would be a good question. Another thing I'm curious about, which I kind of want to open this up to, is so, you know, the onboarding process. I mean, Ben, you just said Starbucks is huge. It's a big coffee chain. A lot of people use those loyalty points. Now they've specified that you can buy these stamps with a credit card and you don't need a crypto wallet. But beyond just these technologies themselves, the whole concept I think can throw people off. Do you guys think that the concept of NFTs Web3 can have this impact where people are just thrown off by the nature of it and aren't going to actually take the time to use it if they're just scared of what barriers to entry might or might not exist?
2: I don't fully understand what the crypto aspect of it is. If you're just going to pay with your credit card and have it on your wallet. And I don't understand quite honestly, like what's the value prop for crypto here?
3: Polygon, Polygon NFTs. I mean, that is a good question though, actually understanding why people use this. I mean, I was talking to someone else at Coindesk the other day who asked me, why do we need crypto for this? And I think that's something we should always be asking about these projects, to be honest.
2: Yeah. Like one of the first articles that I wrote at Coindesk was in 2019 was about some project that probably failed 3000 years ago that was trying to use the blockchain the beautiful blockchain to track coffee beans in Honduras that is thematically similar to this and in fact they have similar they're they're harkening at similar tones with this Starbucks Odyssey program but at least there you had some sort of reason for crypto to be involved that being we're going to follow the beans and make sure that the money's being paid here it's you buy a coffee and you get a stamp
1: I don't see how that's really doing it. I think the interesting question is about interoperability and whether you're going to be able to use these magic beans, as you put it, Danny. Oh, yeah, magic. In, in other parts of life. I mean, you know, traditionally loyalty schemes have been, you know, if you go on British Airways or American Airlines or whatever and you get your rewards, you can only really generally spend those rewards by buying a, another ticket or service from that company. But crypto tokens or whatever you want to call it, NFT-driven loyalty programs, they have a potential for interoperability and you know using that magic bean uh, in, in in a number of different ways, and it's going to be interesting to see whether we whether we see that going forward. Surely, if you're a company like Starbucks, you want to open up that platform so that so you get greater usability. but maybe there's questions as a company as to whether they want their currency used on other people's platform, and I think that's that's always a kind of question with these big hierarchical companies about whether they can play. Not only with the technology, but really with the ethos of Web3, which is much more of a flat, non-hierarchical structure than they're probably used to playing with.
3: Something else I'm thinking about is what this means for community. So typically in Starbucks loyalty, at least how it's been, you, you know, Ben, like you were talking about, continuing to buy these products if you already have some type of loyalty or some points. You know, with Starbucks, you're continuing to buy lattes and frappuccinos so that you can get points, so you can get free drinks. But this makes it seem like this Odyssey program is catering towards coffee lovers and this community of people who love the quality of, you know, these magic beans and really special experiences, you know, for this greater love of coffee itself rather than just the drinks. I mean, I'm really curious about how they're going to be able to cultivate that.
2: Cultivate the community?
3: Yeah. Cultivate the community. I mean, cultivate the beans too, I guess.
2: Well, the community lives and dies by the magic beans. So that's really the, the core of it. I don't know. I mean, I think Ben had a really good point about interoperability. I don't think personally that brands have any incentive to make their loyalty programs and loyalty points interoperable because it almost defeats the point, right? The point of a loyalty program with brand is you reward returning customers. And if you're rewarding returning customers, Unless you have some integration with a brand that has nothing to do with what you're doing, then it's going to be working against that desire of yours. So I don't know, maybe we're going to have a world where it's like a credit card. The American Airlines card gets me points that I can use on American Airlines. But the American Express card gets me points that I can use at American Airlines or United or Hilton. And so it's a closed system, but it's more open in its breadth of where I can use my magic beans. So maybe we're going to have a world where we have a similar thing in crypto. I don't know.
3: Right. So we need like a coffee NFT. That's chain. Sorry, chain has two meanings here. Not blockchain, actual coffee chain. That is coffee chain agnostic. So you could take it to Pret. You could go to Pete's. You could go to Blue Bottle. I don't know.
2: Maybe. I don't think the coffee companies would ever allow such a
1: thing to happen.
3: Oh, definitely not. Absolutely not. Ben, were you going to say something?
1: Yeah, I mean, just to reiterate on that point again, I just don't see that's happening. And, you know, I think these loyalty schemes uh, will remain what they've always been, which is uh, be loyal to that one company, don't be loyal to the concept, which I think they're trying to build here. But I, I don't really see that happening.
3: All right. So whether or not we are cultivating magic beans or not, we are always cultivating something interesting here on the show. That was Carpe Consensus. My name's Cam Thompson. Ben, Danny, goodbye. Talk to you all next week.
1: See you in Austin. See you in Austin.
3: And make sure you tune in next Thursday for our next episode. Cheers, everyone.
0: Carpe Consensus is a Coindesk production. Executive produced by Jared Schwartz. And produced and edited by Eleanor Paul. Have any questions or comments? Email us at podcasts at coindesk.com. Subject line, Carpe Consensus. Thanks for listening and see you next week.